Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music, the tall tales, true stories, and current goings-on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter and swim buck-naked in summer. Welcome to episode 38 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom along with the rest of the crew, and it's my privilege to invite you to our latest show. This month, we have an interview with our musical guest artists, The Hammer and the Hatchet, and we'll listen to a few of their tunes. Carrie Ray brings us another edition of Forest Song. We also have poetry from three of our favorite poets, Chris Curtin, Carol Marks, and Gunther Flum. Dave Seastrom has another essay. We have a few words from Rick Fettick, and we'll share the community calendar. We begin with our interview with The Hammer and the Hatchet. We'll listen to this month's edition of Forest Song with Carrie Ray, and Chris Curtin shares his poem, Driving Me Crazy. up in the morning and found his overcoat walked down to the river and climbed aboard a boat headed up river with the purpose of never being seen again we have the hammer and the hatchet with us and it's John Bauer and Jamie Hood. Uh, welcome to the studio. Let's talk about the name first off. Where did that come? Well, uh, really it was John's idea. We played the Irvington Folk Festival last June and uh, on the way to the gig we tried to figure out what we were going to call ourselves and uh, John pulled that out of his hat. So. Yeah, yeah. they asked us right before we hit the stage, what's the name of your band? I was like, ah, the Hammer and the Hatchet. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, now, Jamie, you've already identified yourself as the Hatchet member of the crew. Yes, sir. Yeah, so, John, that means you're the Hammer guy. That's right. right? Yeah. right. <laughs> I'm blunt. Yeah, I'm blunt. <laughs> well, uh, and your vocals, guitar and mandolin, and Jamie, your guitar and vocals. Yes. Um, I got a chance to listen to some of your music and uh, really uh, love your guitar playing style and I think your vocals are great together. Thank you. So let's talk about some of the projects you've been working on. I know you just came out with a CD. Yeah, we recorded that in November. It's a self-titled CD, The Hammer and the Hatchet. We recorded it over at Farm Fresh. It was mastered there also. and started out, we were just going to go in and do five or six songs for an EP and we were rocking that day and ended up knocking out nine songs so we walked out with an nice. album instead of an ep so nice that was that was good is this original material yeah all except for one song okay. um, and the one song <clears throat> was recorded or written by a good friend of ours and uh, i'll have jamie tell you about that song yeah his yeah. name's ralph ed jeffers and he's uh part of the punk and holler boys he's really the founding member him and uh craig small he calls himself slim um, but Ralph Ed wrote this song, and it's uh, it's a 
I can't believe I still put up with you, you do me so wrong kind of song. <laughs> and uh, uh, after some persuasion, I got him to let me record it from a female perspective. So oh. it, people tend to it enjoy d- it. It does go both ways. Yeah, it does go both ways. Yeah. And, and people get where I'm coming from when I sing it, I guess. Oh. <laughs> can't wait to hear it. So how long have you been together? Uh, about a year. About a year on the money. Yeah, yeah. Our first gig was like the twenty seventh of June. Yeah, so yep. not quite a year. Well, you've obviously been playing a lot longer than that. So there was other musical influences along the way. Yeah, for me especially, I've been playing music since I was thirteen years old. You mm. know, started going out and playing in bands and stuff. And uh, uh, I'm a member of the Punk and Holler Boys that she was just talking about too. And then we play together. And I, I sit in with bands playing mandolin or guitar. Mm-hmm. Whenever they need somebody to fill in, they'll give me a call. You know, that's kind of a good gig to have. But I've been writing songs since about 2000. Well, I think that's kind of the key. I mean, if you're not making your own music, you're a cover band. Right. When I started out as a kid playing guitar, I was always sitting there writing the riffs. Uh-huh. So I've always kind of focused on writing my own material. But, you know, the words part came later, you know. It was well, kind of a, sometimes you have to live long enough to have something to say. Huh? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of your musical influences? Uh, for me, uh, they can go as far or deep as punk rock, heavy metal. Um, and you know, then I got back into listening to acoustic music and bluegrass around 2000, you know, with the Bean Blossom for my first time there. And then I got really into the singer-songwriter sort of stuff like Towns Van Zandt and Adam Carroll, Guy Clark, Steve Earle, and that whole vein of music there. And uh, that pretty much leads you to where we are today. I mean, that's, that's set me up for writing songs. And That I grew up on, um, you know, your traditional outlaw country stuff and and a lot of old country music from Loretta Lynn and George Jones and Ernest Tubbs. um, Yeah, Ernie Tubbs, of course. Yeah, and and a lot of that, you know, Jerry Reed, just stuff like that. Um, So I tend to bring a little more of that kind of honky tonk vibe. To us. It's great. It's a big change for me, but it's a welcome change because I hadn't really had a lot of that influence in my music or wrote in that direction or what have you. So it's it's really fun to kind of mesh those styles. Well, it's like Louis Armstrong said, there's there's only two kinds of music, good music and all that other stuff. That's right. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've actually cleaned that quote up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I like to think I know the difference between the good and the bad. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so what uh, what do you have any gigs coming up? Oh, we've got we've got quite a few. Uh, some couple of the bigger ones were on the Virginia Avenue Folk Festival up in Fountain Square in Indianapolis on May 9th. Um, <clears throat> That's a great day of music, like 70 bands. Wow. And a lot of the bands from Brown County here, a lot of our friends are going to be up playing that festival. And nine stages, the White Lightning Boys, Indiana Boys. I think Dakota Joe's going to be there. Mm-hmm. Like Keenan's um, Whipstitch Sally's. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of bands. A lot of bands. And, and the Rusted String Swindlers. Yeah. <laughs> We're also... <laughs> yeah, we just had the, the Swindlers in last month. Sorry. Yes. No. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're also at Nauru, um coming up July 25th. Um, we're going to be playing the VIP tent there earlier in the day. And then I got another gig later in the evening, so I'll have to split after that. But we'll be at Nauru, and then uh, 
shoot, we've got a mess of gigs. Um, May 11th, we're at the uh, Big Woods Brewery. May 19th, we're at the Pine Room. May 22nd, we're at the Big Busted Bar. May 29th is a really cool date for us. We got to play at Logan Street Sanctuary up in Noblesville, which that's a, a good friend of mine, John Gilmore, uh, bought a, bought an old church in Noblesville and has changed that into a, an excellent listening room venue. Uh, Logan Street Sanctuary. We'll be opening for a good friend of mine from Austin, Texas, named Adam Carroll, who's mm. an amazing songwriter. So excited for that show excited to get to open for adam again yeah at a new great venue now you've got a uh, a cd party coming up yeah that'll be CD release party that's true well i think we're going to do that june 20th at the big busted bar we're actually going to headline that night we've had it around a little bit but you know haven't really officially released it we had a few different places we could have done a release at but i think it's good for us to do it in our hometown it's fun to have all the locals and the people that have been around to support us and encourage us to be able to come easily there you go to a venue so that's the idea and now i know you have a, a facebook page do you have anything else yeah you can you can search the hammer and the hatchet on youtube and there's been a number of videos popping up as we play shows it just seems like you know at least a video somebody will post a little snippet or a video the the bulk of that is from the new year's eve show this last year with the uh, we opened up for Raven breezy big damn excellent band excellent Uber. that was a great show and keenan rainwater band was also on that bill so that was a exciting night a lot of fun all our friends playing but a lot of the video you'll see on YouTube is from that. Our friend Dave Wallace shot those videos, and they're really good. Yeah, Facebook page, and uh, we're also on Reverb Nation, Hammer and Hatchet at Reverb Nation. We do have a web page, but we haven't really done a whole lot with that yet. We're still uh, working on things. Being busy <laughs> musician slash my other job, you know. <laughs> there you go. What is your other job? Uh, I'm an artist here in Brown County. I weave on floor looms and do leather work and custom sewing projects for people. It keeps me pretty busy. Well, John, you already mentioned that you're a union electrician. I am, yeah, yeah. And I'm doing odd jobs and stuff around town here construction-wise and staying busy that way. Get more local. A lot of my buddies are out traveling on the road, which is which is great. But well, that kind of goes with being in the union, doesn't it? It does, yeah, yeah. It ebbs and flows. Sometimes there's a lot of work locally and then... Oftentimes there isn't, so <laughs> it's kind of a drawback to that somewhat, but I am proud to be a union electrician for sure. So let's talk about Kentuckiana Blues. That was a song I wrote before I met Jamie, and uh, right away when I met Jamie I knew that she was going to fit the part and everything. So that's really the first song that her and I started doing together was Kentucky and the Blues. My boss called me and they've had another break in the mill. The casters are down and stuck out in Crawfordsville. Yes, I'm stuck out in Crawfordsville. Kentucky and the blues 
forever long your oxbow pen How we made the sweetest love neath the bridge Took a gamble on a riverboat rolling up and down the hill Passing barges hauling ore bound for some steel mill But it's hard to believe the few miles between heaven and hell All but one day and I'm gonna get out of this godforsaken mill For a song, I'm your host, Carrie Ray, and I have to confess, not only am I really enjoying sharing this time and my passion for songwriting and the creative process with you, but I think it's making me a better writer. It's been said that if you really want to learn something, teach it. And well, I'm not really teaching in this case, but preparing for and writing these segments has made me take a closer look at the craft and my fierce commitment to bringing value here calls on me to think critically on many levels. So it goes that as I challenge you, I'm challenging me. Now, as I have read and listened back to past installments of For a Song, I notice that my love of songwriting as a vehicle for storytelling certainly comes through. It has always been the most comfortable go-to for me. And while I believe the message or story you want to tell and the chord you mean to strike with a song is of utmost importance. There are other crucial components of songs that work. No song can rise to the top leaning solely on any one, but any one left ragged can positively tank an otherwise good tune. Rhythm, melody, harmony, and structure are a few of these suspects. So my first thought was to make a rare move to file the flowery just for a moment and hit the books in our next several opportunities together to explore these elements. And I wanted to start with structure. I have recently become a curator on a site called Fluence, spelled F-L-U-E-N-C-E. In short, this site allows artists and songwriters to submit audio and video content for review by curators that range from producers to songwriters to music industry bloggers and influencers. And recently, there has been a nagging issue with many of the submissions I have received. Let's call it issues with structural integrity. 
In pop songwriting, and by pop I just mean popular, there are some basic pieces that make up a song, sometimes referred to by letter, A, B, C, etc. The main components that can make up a song are as follows, verse, chorus, and bridge. Now these are the big three. Other elements are intro, pre-chorus, tag, and outro. Now, not every tune has all of these pieces, but understanding what they are can help you decide when and how to use them best. So I started writing, and writing, and writing. And before I knew it, I had nearly three sessions worth of material and felt like I had barely scratched the surface of each song element. I realized that I could easily dedicate an entire four song to each, chorus, verse, etc. A moment later, I had another realization. I was bored. A study of songwriting would be incomplete without taking a close look at the very pieces and parts that songs are made of. But we're trying to make good radio here, folks, not present a dissertation. I was feeling torn. So I traipsed to the studio to talk to my producer about my dilemma of style versus substance. After much deliberation, pontification, and a glass or two of red wine, a solution emerged. One that will allow us to cover our bases relative to the mechanics while leaving our time here to tiptoe through the trials and tulips of the creative process. Moving forward, I will periodically be posting additional written content to carryray.com that delves a little deeper into the mechanical aspects of the creative process. Because the best song concept can fail to relate if not presented in an accessible way. And structure is an important piece of that puzzle. To get us started, I've posted an entry about chorus on my website. Your homework? Go read it. <laughs> I'm Carrie Ray. Join me next time on For a Song. If you have ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website at carryray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y dot com. Thanks for listening. This is Chris Curtin. The story is driving me crazy. It's May in Indianapolis, so everyone's mind is on the race. Whether it's Hillary and Jeb or Marco and Danica, at the Indianapolis 500, thousands of spectators and a worldwide television audience will be electrified by the field of 33 highly skilled drivers speeding around an oval, making 2,000 left turns at 200 miles an hour for two hours. The politicians, while maybe not as highly skilled, have tremendous endurance and have been talking in circles for more than a year now, with many months to go. Do you think that when the race is finished and the celebration over and the drivers go home that night, they have trouble finding their way because they keep forgetting to turn right? Think of it. Their entire careers left turns. When they are home, how do they get to the store and back? Sweetheart, I'm going to drive to the store to get some bread and milk. Oh no, Marco, why don't you walk or take a cab this time for Pete's sake? The last time it took you three hours to get home and gas is so high now. Driving habits are hard to break. 
I think that there are a lot more bad drivers than good drivers, with most of us somewhere in the middle. But we all think we're good drivers. That's why we have no-fault insurance, because nobody ever thinks they were wrong. I was only on the sidewalk for a little while before I swerved into his lane. If he'd have been paying any attention at all, he would have avoided me. We cause most of our own problems on the road. Many of us drive as if it were a competitive sport. Everyone, no matter where they're going, wants to get there first. We're all in a hurry. Whether we're going to work, school, or church, we're doing something really important, like getting to the liquor store and back home with more beer before the start of the second half. We want to get there fast and be there first. Even when we aren't in a hurry, maybe we're out for a drive and looking at the fall colors and are doing 30 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour speed zone, leaning out the window, pointing at the leaves. And now we pause for station ID. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Welcome back to the Brown County Hour, episode 38. Jeff Tryon entertains us with his first edition of a new segment called My Brown County. We have another tune from The Hammer and the Hatchet, and Vera introduces us to artist Money Cagle. This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County, Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. The county nobody wanted. Brown County started out as a kind of an orphan county, a leftover, a latecomer, late bloomer, an unwanted kind of place, passed over for more lucrative land in neighboring places. We didn't become a county in the usual way when the state was first formed in 1816. Like the Apostle Paul, we were born too late. Brown County didn't actually occur until about 1836, 20 years after statehood, when Monroe, Bartholomew, and Jackson counties got together up in the state legislature and each hacked off parts of their counties that they were least interested in. The least accessible, swampiest, hilliest, hardest to build roads in, and just generally hardest to govern hinterlands of our three prosperous neighbors were combined to create what is now Brown County. Settlers had started to trickle into what is now Brown County as soon as they were legally permitted in 1820, some even earlier. 
Most people who settled here were too poor to buy land. People often squatted on the land until they could save up enough cash to file for a land claim. If you did this on good land, you might have the land bought out from under you by some wealthier, unscrupulous operator after you had already cleared it and made improvements. But if you squatted here, crooked speculators were probably going to ignore you in favor of better land to be grabbed elsewhere. So it was safer to homestead here if you didn't have the money up front. By 1830, an estimated 150 settlers had arrived, and in 1835, a petition was presented to the legislature requesting a new county. In February 1836, the state legislature passed a bill providing for the formation from Western Bartholomew, Eastern Monroe, and Northern Jackson counties of a county to be named Brown in honor of a hero of the War of 1812, Jacob Brown. That is, generally speaking, the how of it, but why? Why did the legislature decide to turn this particular area into an independent county? Well, for one thing, Brown County was extremely isolated because of the terrain and lack of infrastructure. Travel and transportation were difficult. There weren't any roads, railroads, canals, or bridges. People followed the river system or old established Native American trails, and those turned to muck and mud in the fall, winter, and spring. The first bridge over Salt Creek east of Nashville on the Columbus and Bloomington Road wasn't built until 1839. Since building and maintaining infrastructure is the responsibility of county governments, the three aforementioned neighboring counties rid themselves of the burden of building and maintaining bridges and roads in the difficult terrain of the new Brown County. Perhaps because it was so isolated and wild, Brown County became a place where people went to get lost, if you know what I mean. Brown County was out in the wilds, and wild things went on there. Actual wild things at first, according to the Goodspeed history, like bears and wolves. One of the first acts of the new county was to offer a $1 bounty for every wolf scalp brought to them, and Goodspeed reports that, quote, considerable money was paid out for wolf scalps. Brown County historian Ray Mathis wrote in 1936, quote, The story is told that the county was organized because the early settlers were horse thieves, ruffians, and fugitives from justice who organized the government of the county to protect themselves. A letter printed in the Indianapolis Star records a family in Brownstown writing to Spencer relatives about making the trip across the perilous forest, quote, they have to cross the newly organized county of Brown, which is a den of horse thieves and robbers, end quote. The early good speed history says, quote, Nashville in early years was a famous resort for sporting characters. Horse racing was a favorite pastime, and when that became too dull, a fight was projected and enjoyed, or perhaps a game of cards was played on a stump in the courthouse square as a settlement of who should treat to a quart of whiskey. Quote, Fights in those days were very frequent and were projected in a perfectly friendly way to settle who was the best man. Any and all newcomers were required to show their mettle and muscle. Friendly and neighborly relations were resumed when the fight was over. All this took place at the county seat. Quote, another amusement was shooting at a mark, either for pleasure or profit. Turkeys were shot for, but the drinks were settled oftener this way than any other. Quote, all this was called gaming and was fined by the early laws before the justices. The county seat contained a great many liquor establishments. It was thought nothing of then and cannot be judged by the standard of today. By the way, this was written in 1844. 
All drank then and rejoiced as the liquor element now does in their personal liberty. Nashville at that time consisted of a cluster of log cabins and 75 people and, as in present times, had a very high ratio of drinking establishments to residents. Banner C. Brummett opened a grocery and liquor store in 1837, according to the Goodspeed History. William Davidson began selling liquor about the same time. P.C. Parker was the first tavern keeper. He owned a double log cabin and sold liquor and groceries. Elijah Preston was an early tavern keeper, as was Thomas Chin, who bought him out. In the 40s, Sylvanus Manville was tavern keeper, his house being called the American Tavern. Chapman and Lowe conducted the hotel before Manville. Goodspeed writes, quote, nearly or quite all of the early businessmen sold liquor, end quote. But not only had the three adjacent counties rid themselves of the most remote and dangerous areas of their counties, full of wolves and ruffians and sporting types, they had also freed themselves of the burden of one of the poorest places in the state. The first record of a claim against the county for the care of a pauper was filed in 1837 for 40 cents per week for the care of an indigent person. Pauper claims climbed steadily from 1846, when the cost of the county was $89.75, to 1879, when it was $908.84. The county looked into buying a poor farm as early as 1859, but never actually got it accomplished until 1870. The early Brown Countyans lived off of wild game and wild plants of the forest. They used bear grease for cooking and made their homes and almost everything in them from trees. The land was hilly, rocky, and heavily forested. They were subsistence farmers who grew an acre or so of corn and raised hogs which ran loose in the woods to fatten on chestnuts and acorns. They traded and bartered and made do for everything else because all cash was saved toward the purchase of homestead land. Not exactly good prospects for tax revenues for the county government or for any kind of development which required capital investment. So, our three neighbors cut us adrift, economically and politically, forming a new county that was among the wildest, poorest, most difficult, and least governable in the state. In time, all of the readily available resources would be plundered, and the little county virtually deserted, left with little but grinding poverty, native genius, and spectacular scenic views. Then. A new kind of resource and industry would be pioneered and developed that would eventually make the county the envy of all the surrounding counties which had once discarded it. But that's a story for another time. Next time we get a little minute to talk about my Brown County. Tell me about Nickel. Well, Ralph says that he wrote it for Ernie Tubb, but when he sent it to him, Ernie Tubb was dead. That's that's a real problem. That's a, that's a bummer for him. So he had to record it with the Punk and Holler boys, and then I had to come in and snatch it up to record for myself. It's just a fun song in the vein of the type of music that I like to play a lot. It's kind of that honky-tonk country type of vibe. It's kind of a woman's scorn song to me. If I had a nickel for every time you caused a problem for us, I'd be a richer woman. Yeah, <laughs> there you go.
Grubb with the Brown County Hour. I'm talking with Monique Cagle today. She is the most eclectic artist in our county to my reckoning. Brown County has been her home all her life. How has living and growing up here influenced your art? I'm interested in the natural surroundings that I grew up in. I love living in the country with all the, the animals and the beautiful scenery. So when I paint, a lot of times I'm painting things that I see outside my back door, like the hay field or the forest or the creek. Also, there's a really strong artist community in the area. So I've met a lot of artists and been influenced by them and they've helped me along in my career by introducing me to people or encouraging me. So that's another aspect. Then there's the whole thing with the, all the colors and the animals that, and they keep showing up in my artwork. So when I make jewelry, I use a lot of blues and greens and browns and natural stones that reflect the colors that I see outside. And a lot of times when I'm working with fiber, I'm creating things that remind me of, of my natural surroundings too, along with the colors and the textures. And then there are the little animals that I make that are reflective of the critters that are outside my door, the squirrels and the chickens and the cats and the dogs. And then you're self-taught as well. Pretty much, yeah. I grew up in a household of four kids. I'm the youngest, and then my mom had to raise us, and we didn't have a whole lot of money, so she encouraged us all to be creative in order to entertain ourselves. We didn't have computers back then. We didn't have cell phones, so she encouraged us to go out and play in the woods or draw. We got bored. She said, do something constructive. We kept pretty busy. It taught me to be creative, and my brothers and sisters all ended up being creative people too. Getting outside is a great place for, for inspiration and to stimulate your imagination, so it's, it's good to get outside. And your artwork is eclectic at best. You work in many different mediums and styles. Yeah, I do. Again, when I was growing up, my mom worked in a lot of different areas of artwork, and I think I learned from her that you can do anything, you can tackle anything, and she instilled in us this huge curiosity about learning and trying something new. And so when it came to art, I did that too. I 
decided I wanted to paint. So I mostly paint in acrylics and I paint impressionistic style paintings. I sew a little bit and I work with felt and I crochet. I make jewelry, I've done collage work, I paint on glassware. So I keep trying new stuff and, and it just feeds my curiosity and my interest in learning. There's this saying that art is food for the soul and I think when you feed your body, you wouldn't just eat pizza every day for each meal forever. How boring. You, you get bored with it. So art is the same way. Why should I just paint every day? I get tired of it. So I dive into other areas. And a lot of people are surprised by that. And they think it's odd. But I think once an artist teaches them certain things like color and perspective and proportion, you can apply those principles to anything. So whether you're picking out colors for a quilt or picking out colors for a painting or for a necklace. You can apply all those things that you've learned to any medium and then after that it's just picking up skills and figuring out how to make your hands work properly and how to make that connection between your mind and your your hands and you can do anything. You have a long-term project that's really interesting and it's called the Grain Bin Art Studio Project. Yeah, being an artist who works in all these different things I tend to collect a lot of stuff so I have boxes of, of yarn and I have piles of canvases and, and frames and boxes of beads and I'm running out of places to put all that in my little tiny farmhouse. I wanted a studio space where I could work properly and leave things out when I'm working on them so I don't have to put everything away again. A place where I could also show my art to people. So I started thinking about do I rent studio space? Do I try to build a studio? And I started looking around my farm. I have some old barns and I also have this old grain bin and I noticed online that a lot of people are converting grain bins into anything. You can make them into bed and breakfast, into bars, into workspaces, into houses. So I thought well maybe I could turn it into a studio. Then I talked to Martha Seckler, who's an artist, and she's a friend of mine, and she said, well, talk to Chris Todd. He's the building trades teacher at the local high school, and every year his kids pick a project, and they build something. So I talked to him, and he came out to the grain bin, and he climbed inside of it, and he climbed mm -hmm. on top of it, and he measured it, and he walked all around, and he looked at it, and did some pondering and some measuring, and, and he came back and said, yeah, we could take this on as a project. And, and I thought that would be so wonderful because the kids would learn so much from it. They would literally be working outside the box. They'd have to work in something that was round and something that was metal. And I think a lot of them are probably kids that grew up in the country and to them a grain bin is something you store grain in. And I wanted them to think about what else can you do with it? You can repurpose it. What they would do is they would come in, frame the walls, put in a ceiling and a floor, and then would put in windows and doors and it would have heating and cooling just like any regular building. It would be a little over 600 square feet so it should be plenty of space for me to make art. Then also other artists could come in and teach workshops. Presumably somewhere down the road maybe I could start teaching too and I would also have a place to show my art. I think it would be a really unusual unique place and people would enjoy coming out and seeing it and seeing what you can do with a grain bin and they could see the farm with the chickens and the ducks and the big white goose. I think it would be really enjoyable. So when he came out and looked at it, Chris came up with a figure for me and he said, well, I think it would cost about $15,000 to do this. I'm a self-employed artist. I don't have $15,000 lying around. So I started a GoFundMe campaign. And so if you go to www.gofundme.com slash grain bin studio. You can see pictures of my grain bin and read about it. And I'm hoping that perhaps this August or maybe in the winter they can get started on it and hopefully by next fall when the studio tour rolls around in Brown County I can finally have my own studio that I can bring people to and show my art. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is Vera Grubbs with the Brown County Hour, and we've been talking to Monique Cagle.
Now we pause for station ID. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. The final segment begins with the community calendar. Dave Seastrom weighs in with another essay. Gunter Flum has a timely poem, and we'll hear a few words from Rick Fetty. We are pleased to bring you a poem from Carol Mark, and we'll close the show with another tune from The Hammer and the Hatchet. Welcome to the community calendar. The following events take place in May. On the 16th, there's the Humane Society Dog Romp, taking place at Deer Run Park in Nashville. Also on the 16th, there's the Taste of Nashville. Many of the local restaurants will be participating. You could walk your dog or get a bite to eat all in the same day. On the 23rd, there's the Acoustic Roots Music Festival at the Upland Brewery in Bloomington. This is a fundraising event for WFHB, and several Brown County artists will be performing. On the 28th, the League of Women Voters will be hosting a Yellowwood Road conversation with representatives from county government and the DNR at the county office building. On the 29th, Bean Blossom Farmers Market begins a new season at St. David's Episcopal Church. From the 28th through the 30th is the John Hartford Memorial Festival at Bill Monroe's Music Park. The Brown County Hour Team will be manning the table in front of the main stage and we would love it if you'd stop by. And last but not least, on June 5th and 6th is the Ukulele Fest held in the party field at Needmore. For more information, you can check our website at www.browncountyhour.com. We're having a wonderful spring in Brown County this year. I think everyone is particularly enjoying the weather because the winter was so hard. And it was a hard winter. For the first time, my wife and I burnt our winter supply of firewood down to a few sticks before the weather turned. We might have had a day or two before I would have been forced to go out, fire up the chainsaw, and make some more. That's cutting it pretty close. As I'm recording this piece, we're one day away from Earth Day, and there is no finer way to celebrate than taking a nice walk in the woods. Right now, the forest is filled with wildflowers. The trillium, jack in the pulpit, and lady slippers are out in abundance, and even the elusive morale is making an appearance. In the last few weeks, we've watched the world turn green. 
It began in the yards and the hillsides as the grass went from winter brown to vibrant green, and now we're seeing the forest itself go from a misty hint of green to being completely leafed out. We've also had our first flood of the season. As far as floods go, this one doesn't compare to the flood of 2008, and no one is disappointed. But it did manage to fall on the very night that Rick and I were scheduled to pitch for WFHB's Fun Drive. I got a little taste of adventure as I crossed the floodwaters covering North Shore on my way to the station, and I was glad when I finally made it to the high ground of Lanham Ridge. This is one of those things you can count on during springtime in hill country. Most of us can tell when it will flood by how much rain is falling. When the rain falls with a certain intensity and lasts longer than an afternoon, it's a sure bet the water will be over the roads. We also know which roads to avoid. Living in Brown County requires adapting to the environment, not the other way around. We know that nature trumps all, and if we're going to live here, we need to get along. The way a lot of us choose to interact with nature is to grow a garden. There's true magic in preparing the beds, planting the seeds, and eventually harvesting the produce. We're not known for a particularly good soil, and this just shows the devotion many of us have. Whatever we may lack in the way of good soil, we more than make up for it by having a huge amount of forest land. In fact, we have the highest concentration of forested land in the state, coming in at almost 90%. We are also tied for the lowest population density. All of this means there's more nature than people, and I'm pretty sure that's why many of us live here. It seems obvious that nature is best managed by leaving her alone. After all, she did a fine job before we started mucking things up. In Brown County, we have learned this lesson the hard way. We were almost wiped out by the clear cut a century ago. Without the forest to provide building materials, fuel, and game, there was no way to make it here, and the population dropped by more than 50%. We lost our topsoil as our deforested hillsides bled into the valleys and streams that ran brown all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. We now have the luxury of living in a forest that's almost 100 years old, and that's what you see if you come and visit us. Earth Day is a good time to reflect on what we citizens want in the form of forest management. I suppose it's fair to ask how far will we, as a species, go to further civilization? Will we not be satisfied until every little scrap of nature is either polluted or tamed into submission? Does it matter that a place like Brown County be allowed to retain the largest section of what was once the great forest that covered most of the state? Or will our state forest be sold for pittance to satisfy the bottom line? There's a lot of talk about how to properly manage our forest lands. Those in charge claim that they have science on their side. This view is highly controversial, as evidenced by dissension in the ranks. If forest management was only about science, all of the parties would agree. As we celebrate the 45th Earth Day, we have the opportunity to consider the future and what it might look like. Personally, I can't imagine Brown County without her beautiful forests teeming with life. The birds and the bats, the deer and the snakes all need their home in order to survive. I also believe that we as humans need nature to maintain our connection to life here on this beautiful blue planet. After all these years on the earth, if we only have learned one thing, let it be that all we have to do is leave nature to manage herself, and we'll all be the beneficiaries. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. How Karen Won the Indy 500 by Gunther Flum Up in Indy end of May, they have up their 500 day 
where folks all gather at one place and watch these fancy cars all race in a circle really fast to see which one will be the last of all them cars of different styles to finish first 500 miles. They even have a big parade to celebrate the money made from all the folks who pay out cash to watch them cars all race and crash. Now usually we don't crash for thrills here in our Brown County Hills since most of the land around here is found to kind of run most up and down. So if you go 500 mile, it'll be most up and down a while. So when a race that goes around on some flat circle on the ground, our whole county wondered why we don't give that race a try. And so it was our artist guild with country folks who helped to build a racing car so sleek and mean like nothing no one ever seen and enter that car in the race to see if we could win first place. Of course, you'll ask me how us locals, artsy types, and country yokels thought there's any way we could with our race car made of wood, with all proportions, proper size, might win the race and take the prize, or any chance it would survive when they was told that I would drive. And so we had to have a name for all Brown County was to blame since everyone had been there sharing. So with our love, we called her Karen. Since we all cared down in our heart, our wooden car would even start. And so it came 500 day and we lined up to race away. And I'll admit that to be fair, we were the tortoise to their hair. But all it took was just one lap and I created such a gap that in my rear view, looking back, I saw them cars run off the track. Plus anyone who made the pits jumped from their cars and called it quits. For in one lap from all my smoke, I made them other drivers choke. Since it was true, I broke no rule, but I made me a secret fuel that I admit was so obscene it barely passed as gasoline. With possum pee and skunk oil, too, why I made such a potent brew that I had knocked out or had gassed every driver I had passed as all them cars pulled off the road when I unleashed my mother load. And so I know you might poke fun, but just by caring, I had won. But I cared enough to use our skunks on that race crowd full of drunks, cause in that circle at that speed, I knew one lap was all I'd need. Next year, I'm gonna add poison ivy to my new gasoline and see what that does. Yours truly, Gunther Flum. In light of Mother's Day, women like straight lines and men like curves. If you look at a male species, he is usually bigger and stronger in stature. A man is made of straight lines, square shoulders, chest to hips, and down to the feet. It's pretty straight up and down lines. His arms hang straight down his sides with palms facing inward. Then there's always that subject we like to get straight between us. Lines and angles are attractive to the female. They represent strength and security in someone who might be a good provider. Women, on the other hand, are all curves and greatly appreciated by the male. Often the hair rounds the face and flows down the neck and onto the softly rounded shoulders. There's a nice taper down to the waist, then those nicely curved childbearing hips taper down to those delicate tootsies planted closely together. A woman's arms also hang down to her side, but unlike the man, her palms turn out a slight bit forward. There's a reason for this. It allows a mother to hold a baby more comfortably and for a longer period of time. This helps in general, but especially for nursing. Those delicate arms make a perfect cradle for a baby breastfeeding. Something occurred to me not too long ago. Society, men's magazines, Victoria's Secret's push-up bras, etc., all project and propound that a larger breast is more preferred. 
Most mammals basically have no breasts until they become pregnant, give birth, and begin nursing. They provide the food for life. Leave from milk. Nutrition, vitamins, antibiotics, and love. What's not to like about that? I personally have never met a pair I didn't like. There is always the awesome white horse running through the pasture, galloping along, mane and tail, wisping in the wind, nostrils flaring without a care in the world. But there are three most beautiful things in the world to me. Women in general, with their innate compassion and all those interesting curves. Then there's the pregnant woman, with an extra curve that can turn an innie into an outie. But you know that there are two lives inside of one. How awesome is that? The third, mother and baby at feeding time. The baby's vision has developed just enough to make eye contact with its mom. If that's not a beautiful sight to behold, I don't know what is. All said and done, we couldn't and wouldn't be here without you. It's an understatement to call you our other half. For what it's worth, have a happy Mother's Day. This is Rick Fettig. My name is Carol Marks, and this poem is entitled, Train. There is still a freight train every day just before dawn. I can hear the whistle, high and lonesome. Easiest in winter with no muffling leaves, but even on summer mornings that coal train fades in behind the crickets and katydids, with the rattle of the coal cars slowing for Helmsburg and then the trestle by Lake Lemon, ridges and ridges away. So what's the story behind Key to My Heart? Key to My Heart. Uh, that is an old song of mine, and so old I almost forgot about it entirely. Until a friend of mine, who I call my music archivist, Dean Garrity, gave me a stack of CDs of stuff that I just recorded on a four-track. You know, so we're listening through that stuff, and here's this song that I almost forgot about. I think I wrote it in like 10 minutes. You know, started dating Jamie, and we started playing music, and I was like, well, that's a perfect song for us. We need it. I call it our dysfunctional love song. <laughs> it's like our in spite of ourselves. I'm the king of hard times, and you're the hero again. Baby, you know it's bad when they repo your trash can When it rains, it pours, Katie bar the door Loving me can be quite a chore But I love you, little darling, you're the key to my heart And I've always loved you, even from the start So let's stay together and never a spark Little darling, I love you, you're the key to my heart Jerk in a wrinkly t-shirt Well I smoke and I cuss And I drink and I lie But darling if you leave me Think I fall down and die But I love you little darling You're the key to my heart And I've always loved you Even from the start So let's stay together And never else part Little darling I love you You're the key to my heart Cause I can be like a bump sock on your right foot 
spray my last bottle of urine detox But I love you little darling, you're the key to my heart And I've always loved you even from the start So let's stay together and never us apart Little darling, I love you, you're the key to my heart write you this song even though it's cliche far too long well, i'm sorry it turns out that the man of your dreams he's bald and fat wearing dirty jeans but i love you little darling you're the key to my heart and i've always loved you even from the start so let's stay together and never us Thanks for tuning in to episode 38 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. You can stream this or any of our shows from our website, browncountyhour.com. While you're there, take a look at our Woodwatch page devoted to informing the public about the situation our forest lands are facing. This show was produced by Jeff Foster, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, and Dave Seastrom. We'd also like to thank our guest host, Paulette Justice. Thanks as always to our friend Slats Klug for our theme music. listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh